Miles, what you reading? X-Men. I'm trying to figure out what's up with Jubilee's powers. She's lost the plasma bursts a while back, right? Oh yeah, she was depowered on M-Day. But she got turned into a vampire in Curse of the Mutants. Yeah, and that's basically her power set these days. Fangs, claws, super strength and speed, decreased physical vulnerability, turning into mist, dramatic brooding. Didn't she have a healing factor, too? That was just because she was drinking a bunch of Wolverine's blood. Ugh. Right? And she's got a baby. Yeah. Well, where'd he come from? The future. Like Earth 811? No, the capital F future. So the Earth 616 future? I don't know if he exists in other timelines. What? The future. Shogo's father? You mean Future Man? No, no. Future Man was a supervillain from 1 million AD who fought the All-Winners Squad during the Silver Age. The Future is a super generic, super competent Batman-type supervillain mercenary with a jungle base. And his name is the Future? Yep. Because based on that description, I kind of feel like the mid-90s might be more apt. Also, I thought Shogo was an orphan, or maybe Ascension Virus. Bacterial colony, but he got better. Okay, so how'd they find his dad? Oh, he found them. I think he showed up somewhere in X-Men Volume 4, took out the X-Men, kidnapped Jubilee in hopes of later trading her in for Shogo so he could raise him up as his heir. How'd they beat him? God, actually, I have no idea. I only followed a little bit of Woods Run. Well, okay, do we know anyone who's actually up to date on this stuff? I mean, G. Willow Wilson probably is. She's writing the series. Hey, Willow, how did Jubilee get Shogo back? Okay, remember Chimera, Storm's kid from the future? Wait, Storm had a kid with the future? No, no, small f future. Earth TRN 311, the one where magic gets the X-Men who help them take out the future brotherhood. This is the Chimera who stuck around in the present to help track down Raze and all those guys. Yeah, but it turned out that was a cover. She'd actually come back in time to save Shogo from the future. Wait, I thought she was from the future. No, 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 capital F future. Anyway, in her timeline, the future had successfully kidnapped Shogo, which kind of screwed him up for life, so she stayed in the past... To keep an eye out and make sure it didn't happen again. Really? Because future Shogo seemed really well adjusted in Battle of the Atom. Yeah, that's how Chimera knew she'd succeeded, which was what made her decide it was worth sticking around. What? Hi, I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 40th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So we are really happy to be here today with G. Willow Wilson, uh, who's probably best known right now for her work on Ms. Marvel. Uh, Willow, congratulations on winning CBR's Best Book of the Year. Thank you so much. And yeah, so and you've written a ton of comics. Uh, there's the Eisner-nominated Air, the World Fantasy Award-winning novel Aleph the Unseen. And most pertinently for our purposes, you have just taken over the reins on X-Men. Yes, indeed. And I feel like we should note that this is also an award-winning series at this point, because uh, when we did the Corbeau Awards at the end of last year, it, it won the uh, Irene Adler Memorial Award for Most Anticipated Future Title. Yes, indeed. Which both made me really excited and made me wish that I'd really gone really big on the series and done huge, tremendous things. <laughs> and kind of rearranged everything and made life heck for the person who's going to take it over after me. But alas. <laughs> well, there's still time. Just bring Wolverine back and kill him again. And I don't know. There are options. No, no, no. If you really want to take the series up a notch, you need to bring in Adam X the extreme. There's so many things I could have done, and now it's like 2020 hindsight, where I could have exploded the whole timeline and put everything back the way it was circa 1992, <laughs> and we could all be so super happy right now. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was happening later this year. I thought that was the big crossover event thing. That I really can't talk about. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, we, we've just heard little mysteries and teases, and we were both sort of rapidly trying to figure out what's going to happen, so... Uh... So you're writing X-Men, also known as adjectiveless X-Men, and I, I love that one of the ways to define a thing is to say that it doesn't have an adjective in front of it. It's the equivalent of when comics publishers start publishing word books. Like, most publishers just call those books, but you have to actually come up with a name for them. Prose, or, you know, non-comics. 
Um, <laughs> so I actually wanted to talk a, a little bit uh, to the listeners about, I guess, what book this was, because um, obviously it's the one that's currently out in the stands, but in a larger context. So this is actually uh, the fourth time a book that was just called X-Men has come out. Volume 1 was what we mostly know as Uncanny X-Men. That was from 1963 until 1981 when it did get the uncanny name, both on its Indicia page and its cover. And that was halfway through Days of Future Past, right? Like, there's one issue that's X-Men and then the next one's Uncanny X-Men. Yeah, this is, I think, when comics fans started to realize, wait, this this stuff is really never going to fully make sense, is it? And um, that's actually the first X-Men series that technically stopped when it got renamed, because the second one, which ran from 1991 to 2001, um, ran for 113 issues and then became New X-Men, again, just with the same contiguous numbering. Yeah, and that was the one that had the really, really big launch with Chris Claremont and Jim Lee and sold like some horrifying number of copies and had a billion variant covers. I think that's actually still got the world record for largest sales of a single issue. And so after that was the 2010 to 2013 volume, volume three. That was 41 issues, and it was the one that started with Curse of the Mutants, which we dedicated an episode partially to a while back. Well, that definitely explains why it only ran 41 issues. It was basically a team-up book. So it was the X-Men teaming up with, you know, like Blade and Curse of the Mutants or various Avenger types or various other characters. I remember there being a lot of one-shot stories in that particular series that were like, you know, one X-Men, one other character. Volume 3 was the first X-Men series to just end and not be retitled. And Volume 4 was then subsequently launched. And it was originally conceived, I think, to be the X-Men all-female team. Yeah, that was originally written by Brian Wood. He did 17 issues. And then Mark Guggenheim did an arc. And now it's you. Uh, I think you're doing four issues. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. Four issues. As is usual, when you take over a book like this, kind of in midstream, when somebody came before you who did like a big, huge thing and rearranged a lot of stuff, and it's unclear what's going to happen that comes after you. So I played it somewhat conservatively in terms of not rearranging too many of the pieces. It's sort of very tightly character focused. There's a lot of big, cool fight scenes, but... I don't go into the past or into the future or into, you know, the ultimate universe or anything <laughs> like that. Given all of the feedback that I've gotten on Twitter and stuff like that, I kind of wish that I had. I mean, like Jubilee, for example, I would sort of go back and give her the plasma burst and get rid of this vampire thing because I have to tell you I'm not a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's entirely reasonable. I mean, while it is entertaining that Jubilee is a freaking vampire for some reason, I kind of feel like you can only do so much with that and... I don't know that there's a, a, a lot more to do from here, so... Can you just refuse to give it back? Just, like, not pass the torch on to the next writer? Just be like, nope, nope. I'm not just giving this book back. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think a lot of people would be really, really happy about that, us included. Yeah, so I want to I go back a little bit to the idea behind this, to the, the premise of that all-female team. X-Men is one of those books that I've always thought of as having a really, really large female fan base relative to other superhero comics. Mm -hmm. And for me, at least, and for a lot of the women I've talked to, a big part of that was not only that it had good female characters, but that those female characters had complex and positive relationships that you, you saw a lot of women who were friends with each other and talked to each other independently. I think, Miles, you talked about it as the comic that made the Bechdel test make sense to you because it's so consistently passed. Yeah, almost from the start, you know, as soon as Storm and Jean are in the same issues, you start seeing that. And it's very rare that you ever don't in an issue of X-Men. And I think that's that's just incredible. That's I mean, it shouldn't be incredible, but it is. At the same time, though, that's always, I think, been part of a, a larger lineup. I don't think that we've really seen many or, or any teams that are just women. I guess my question on this, how much pressure is there going into a book like this to avoid it getting pigeonholed or getting marginalized as the girl book? You know, I think there is a lot of pressure when you do have that sense that there's a very specific bar that you have to jump over. The best thing to do is to forget about it, to not let it get in the way, because you have the tools in your toolbox 
to make it a good book on its own and, and have all those relationships make sense. I know what female friendships are like. I, you know, I don't have to sit there and say, hmm, how do I portray this in an accurate manner? And I think it's easy, and, and this was the same challenge with Ms. Marvel, when you've got a book that could be pigeonholed, it's very easy to get in your own way. And the thing that you have to do is let that go, you know, let it go. <laughs> I won't say it, but um, you really have to sort of go back to your own experiences and what you like as a reader and trust that the story will stand on its own and doesn't need you to sort of meddle with it and make it look a certain way. So that's what I tried to do here. I tried to make the book have the character beats that you would expect among a group of women whose job it is essentially to fight alongside one another. And I'm pretty pleased with how it's turned out thus far, getting sort of the, the physicality right, the beats right. I, for a couple of years, trained at an all-women's kung fu school here in Seattle, and I learned a lot of stuff <laughs> about what it is like to be in a very martial, combat-oriented, all-female environment. And so I tried to carry that over a little bit into this book, and that's actually something that I found really interesting about, I guess, really volume four of X-Men in general, but but your take so far in particular, is it's very much like a high action book. I enjoy that because I think a lot of people, if they're just going by stereotypes, would be like, oh, it's a girl book about X-Men. It's all going to be, you know, tea parties and conversation about boys. And no, it is a superhero <laughs> book. Yeah, where these kick-ass characters are going and, you know, saving the world against these extreme odds and having all these over-the-top things happen. Like you said, like you're just sort of letting go of, the, of it being an all-female team, and I think it's a, it's a stronger book for it, both in terms of being an all-female team and in terms of being a kick-ass X-Men action book. I want to challenge that phrasing a little bit, because I think letting go of that fact implies sort of the way to write not sexistly is to write male and female characters the same, and I, I don't think that's true, because they're going to have different experiences and different social dynamics that inform who they are and how they interact. And ignoring that basically means that you get every character written as the social default. I think letting it go isn't necessarily the thing that's happening or to do, because it, it is something that informs the stories that we've seen in the book so far and continues to. And I think that's a strength. Let me clarify. When I said let it go, I meant you let go of the expectation of what other people want the book to look like or are expecting the book to look like, not let go of the idea that it's an all-female book or it is what it is. Rather, that instead of having that multiplicity of voices in your head telling you how an all-female title should be or how you know a Muslim-American character should be, you get rid of those critics and those expectations and write from your gut knowledge about what those characters are. You write from the perspective that they hired you to write the book, you know, like whatever it is that that strength is that lets you write that book in an honest and hopefully approachable way that you, you trust that that's going to come out. So you just sort of have to get rid of sort of the, the naysayers in your head who say that it has to look this way or it can't look this way or blah, blah, blah. Talking about Ms. Marvel, I think that book just does that incredibly well. I mean, this is a demographic of protagonists we just haven't seen in mainstream comics. And is it Kamala or Kamala? I, I, it occurs to me I should ask you because you would know better than anyone. <laughs> it's Kamala. Kamala. It's, it's an unusual name in that it's actually the feminine of Kamal. Okay. So I think she manages to be a, a hero protagonist that everybody can empathize with. And that's actually something that I very much am seeing in this run of X-Men is that, you know, speaking as a male reader, one of the things I've always loved about X-Men is that it lets me get outside my own skin. It lets me empathize and look up to these characters who are not the same as me. 
I want to go back a little bit to the team lineup because it occurs to me looking at these guys and talking about, you know, those friendships and relationships that if I were putting together a team based on, you know, characters who had prior friendships or prior dynamics, this is probably not the one I would end up with. They're a really interesting assortment and they're an assortment who don't necessarily line up intuitively and and maybe make for more interesting stories that way. So let's take a quick look at who the central players are and maybe how they intersect. I feel like the obvious front and center character is Storm. We are obliged to at least give a nod to detailed continuity coming into this because that is what we do. So we'll say that Storm is currently running the Jean Grey school following the death of Wolverine. She is essentially leading the non-renegade X-Men. I I feel like she's kind of almost become Wolverine in terms of just the number of titles she's headlining in right now. (laughs) I don't think that's a bad thing. No, me neither. I think it's great. Who else is on the team? Psylocke. Yeah, Psylocke. She was one that really I had to do a lot of background research on because she was I mean like you guys I kind of got into the X-Men at the end of the Claremont era I religiously watched the Fox Kids cartoon so when I heard the intro music I was like oh my god I'm 11 years old again (laughs) Um, so Psylocke was kind of a new one on me and I had to take a look at, at her history and kind of get a sense of her because Storm she's part of my DNA as a reader because she's been a part of my reading life since I was so young but Psylocke was a new one There's opportunity there to do some really deep tissue massage. She's one of these characters that occupies a body that is not her original body. And there's some very interesting things that are kind of problematic that go along with that because her adopted body is, you know, an Asian woman, but she is originally British. And Mm -hmm. she's another one where I I kind of went very conservative. I didn't really do anything to her. But if I was going to be on this book for longer and if, if I was really kind of feeling my oats, I might put her back in her original body or do something like that. So that was a that was a weird and interesting one that you're right does not make the kind of intuitive sense that some of those older character groupings and those older friendships like Rogue, uh, you know, Jean is out of the picture now, but Jubilee, Kitty Pride, that kind of cohort of women. So she's she's not really from that. I think that's especially true with with Betsy because a lot of her recent uh, significant character changes and growth have been in books that were very much outside of the mainstream, specifically Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force and Cy Spurrier's X-Force, where, you know, her relationship with basically being addicted to killing has become a central facet. And that's definitely not the sort of thing you tend to address in the mainstream X-Men book. So I guess I was wondering, like, What's your take on that as far as how central that is to the character? Do you see that as more of just a flash in the pan that's currently affecting her or something that's become more core to who she is? Each of the four issues is is more or less from the point of view of a single character, although we have different storylines kind of spliced in there. They're, they're the voiceover characters. So in her voiceover issue, we get to see kind of into her head and we watch her think about where she fits into the power dynamic, you know, how she sees her role because her power set as it stands is is kind of one of the more destructive ones you know with storm you've got weather rachel is a very powerful telepath and and you know she has telekinetic abilities jubilee is a vampire as we've already addressed <laughs> so you know psylocke with her psy blades not only i think has the most obviously violent power set but but it's also kind of disturbing because these are not real weapons that she's fighting with they are specifically for the inflicting of pain You know, I don't go too, too deep into the psychology, but I do kind of look at what she sees the role of that being with regard to her position in the X-Men. And we sort of see that she has a very good idea of kind of where the fault lines are in the team and what she has to kind of do in her mind to, to kind of fill those in. There's, you know, there's a rivalry between Rachel and Storm that kind of Brian Wood sets up in his arc. I tread a little bit lightly 
when there are characters that I'm sort of getting to know that are very important to the fans. The experience as a reader of these things can be sort of cathartic and totemic, and I don't kind of want to mess with that a lot. So it's I think you could do a really interesting Psylocke standalone book that was almost like Punisher and get really into the nitty gritty of that stuff. Yes, please. Yeah, that actually would be amazing. Now I really want to read actually, that. Actually, listening. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to see a terrifying Psylocke solo anti-hero terrifying series. Psylocke. Uh-huh. Um, so I have a slightly more pragmatic version of that question, which is she's currently in Cyspurrier's X-Force, which is, is about to end. And in that book is on the run and coming rapidly unhinged along with the rest of the team. And I'm wondering, when you're writing an X book, how much coordination do you end up having to do with current continuity? It really depends on several factors. Number one, how long your run is, what the function of the run is, the the plans of the person who is taking over, what kind of events might be coming up where it's like, oh, well, if we send this person, if we, you know, freeze this person in carbonite and send them to Mars, then they can't, you know, they have to be back in X-Force by March. So that's not going to work out. And now I'm just so, picturing like a FedEx delivery box showing up with, you know, right, like, Wolverine slowly thawing out or whatever. <laughs> that's right. We sent you the wrong one. This is Han Solo. Damn. Ah, well, um, at least they're under the, they're both owned by Disney. It's fine. That's right. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you're right. So it would all work out in the end. It's really what usually ends up happening in my experience is you write your outline in an ideal world. This is what I would like to do. And then the editor will come back and say, you know, this writer needs this character here. And so we can't really do this thing with their powers or that object that you needed for the storyline is going to be destroyed next month in this other book. So you have to figure out something else to use. There's a lot of that kind of back and forth that happens typically before the scripts get written and you kind of have to roll with it a little bit. But I'm at a very interesting point where it used to be I had to sort of like take the marching orders and and kind of roll with them. And (laughs) I remember when I was writing Vixen at DC there were like three different things that made it so that the entire plot line that I'd come up with had to be junked and kind of rewritten because this particular thing, you know, needed to be there in another series. And But now I, I get to play a little bit more in a bigger sandbox and I'm still kind of getting used to that. <laughs> but there are certain limitations that are there with, with an ongoing team book that you have to kind of respect. I think Chris Claremont way back in the day definitely had the advantage of basically writing the entire X line so he could do whatever he wanted. And, and these days, I mean... Not only are there so many different writers on the book, but, you know, with writers doing individual arcs here and there, I'd imagine the the amount of coordination necessary just gets hugely over the top. Yeah, I sort of imagine the Marvel Creative Summit as like a giant leaderboard where everyone just figures out who's where when. There's a lot of, of exactly that. <laughs> There's more, but but yeah, a lot of that does happen. So talking about characters, uh, we also have M. Monet Saint. Oh, God, I can't Saint-Croix. say Saint Croix. Saint Croix. Man, she's the character who I sort of think of as the wild card in this book, because she's the one who has had by far and away the least contact with Central X titles. Um, She started out in Generation X. Her superpower is basically that she's perfect. Um, Mm -hmm. She is a super badass queen bee dreamboat. Uh, She can fly. She's a telepath. She's super strong. She's super fast. She's super awesome. She's super smart. She's super snarky. And she's now maybe also kind of telekinetic a little bit. She also has one of the most amazingly convoluted family backstories of all time, which I am not going to touch right now unless it's going to be directly relevant. Oh, man, the whole penance thing. Yeah. I realize we're asking for a spoiler, but do we need to go there? (laughs) Not necessarily. Thank God. I say that there's there's a little bit of a flashback. It's. I don't get into the penance stuff either because it's too weird even for me. (laughs) I just left it alone. She is most recently, I think her most recent team affiliation was X Factor. 
the Madrox-led team. And actually, I mean, given that in Generation X, a lot of the time she was not actually her, again, more pen and stuff, I think X-Factor was kind of where she had the most exposure, like, as being herself, as being a character in the Marvel Universe. Well, and where she got a distinct personality, because so much of who she was in Generation X was dictated by being three different people at once. And she was she was actually originally, I think, uh, Scott Lobdell didn't intend for her to actually be a real person. For the, it was going to turn out that she was she was just this construct, and then she, she ended up becoming a real character. Oh man, we're like building a cold open as we go here. Oh, there's going to, yeah, the, the Sunquall family is going to be at least two. So with a character like that, who who is kind of a cipher in ways that make fitting into a team difficult, like I kind of think of her as kind of the Emma Frost of Generation X, a character who very much made a point of being socially separate from her peers. How do you see her fitting into this group? Well, it's interesting that you should say she, she sees herself as being somewhat separate because I'm not going to give too much away, but she makes a decision kind of on her own for that reason that has repercussions. I agree. She is the wild card. Some people love her. Some people hate her. All of the X-Men really are in danger of being overpowered in such a way that it's difficult to write a story about them because you can't challenge them in any way. They're just so powerful. You know, like, we'll drop a city on them and they'll just sort of telekinesis it up in the air. And, you know, whatever it is, we'll just find a workaround. And I think with Monet, that is particularly true because she has such a wide net power set I tried to kind of use this setting to make it so that the tools that are usually available to her are no longer there because they're, they're underground. They're kind of all trapped. It was interesting to me to have a character like that who was kind of a wild card. I mean, they can be the person in the book who does the unexpected thing that becomes like a butterfly flaps its wings and kind of drives the story forward. The thing that I do pick up on the way that Monet has most recently been portrayed is that she has a lot of anger. Some of it is carried over from the pennant stuff. She's kind of in M world. So I try to get into that a little bit in the book. A lot of people have asked, you know, like, she's also supposed to be Muslim. So so are you going to get into that? The answer to that is not really, because it's obvious that religion is not a central factor in her identity. And so I didn't want to co-opt her in some way and, and make her into some sort of set piece. What you said about finding a way around that superpower set reminds me so much of an essay Glenn Weldon wrote on Superman a long time ago and about how Superman gets boring when people try to find ways to challenge him that are, are just give him something bigger and bigger and bigger to fight Bigger him, and bigger and bigger. Right? And yep. he posits that the way you challenge Superman is instead to give him a situation where he can't save anyone. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's a scenario that's very specific to Superman and who he is. What do you think would be Monet's equivalent to that? You know, I kind of give them all the same problem, which is how do you fight the planet that you live on when it's not about we have to eliminate this threat and then we'll all be fine and go home and go back to the the mansion and, and have a party and everything will be fine. When it's more complicated than that, when the team is split up and isolated in such a way that their power sets are of limited use, how then do you respond? Because then you can't rely on your power set and you can't just punch things. Uh, and that's when you have to start really relying on on the relationships that you've built, on that chain of command, on problem solving. I'm, I'm making it sound very boring, but if you know you guys have read the first issue, so obviously there's a lot of cool stuff for them to to jump around on and punch and all of that. But the larger issue is I'm so tempted to get like literary and start talking about ecology and how we're do it, do it. And I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Oh, you totally (laughs) should. My editor's nuts. (laughs) (laughs) I, I really wanted to kind of put them in a place where there was no obvious exit strategy, 
this giant crater like the one that appeared in Siberia several months ago and kind of baffled scientists until they figured out that, oh, it's methane deposits and because the Earth is heating up now, they're causing these giant craters. One more piece of evidence that we are destroying the planet that we live on. So I'm kind of doing a, a bit of a super-powered version of that where one of these giant craters appears in the Black Rock Desert at kind of a very Burning Man-esque festival. And what they have to figure out is not who's the bad guy anymore. It's what caused this and how do we stop it? How do you fight the earth itself? The whole thing to me kind of started when I started thinking about Storm's power set and whether or not she would be particularly bothered by climate change. The fact that we are cooking the earth and that weather patterns don't function the way that they used to and, and that the chemical makeup of air is changing in the atmosphere, the tools of her trade are being changed and moved around and eroded. And I wonder if that bothers her or affects her in any way. And I had this conversation with an editor of mine at Marvel, and there was sort of this long pause that always happens <laughs> when I'm working in comics and the editor is like, Willow, give them something to punch. That was that was the feedback. They need That's great, but they need something to punch. What's fun for me about writing comics in general, but this arc in particular, is that my nature is to kind of go very literary and do big think things. And comics sort of forces you to make all that stuff very concrete and visual, which is very good practice, not only if you're writing comics, but also if you're writing prose. So what I had to do is sort of sit down and be like, okay, within the X universe, how can I address these questions using characters and things that are already there? You know, I don't want to talk too much about what we end up pulling out, but Storm is an Omega level mutant. How much can she use her powers when she's in a little tiny pocket of air half a mile underground? So these are interesting questions to me. So I, I agree. There's the Superman paradox where if you just keep making the supervillains bigger and bigger, people stop caring because it's like the world is ending again. So you really have to, I think, get a little bit creative to give them problems that are interesting and that have to be solved rather than simply leveled. I feel like that's a perfect that segue to the fourth character in this series. <laughs> okay, so so Rachel Summers slash Gray is, is one of my favorite X-Men, and I'm really excited because in, in our current podcast coverage, we're finally getting to the part where she starts doing really interesting stuff and becomes a central a central figure. Yeah, I had forgotten until we started going back to that, the extent to which for her first couple years on the team, she's basically defined by just incredibly severe PTSD. Uh, yeah, which, you know, I mean, if you come from a dark future where everything was terrible and you thought you stopped it and then go back to a past where it turned out you didn't and also PS you never existed and everything is different and everyone you loved is dead in both universes, like, yeah, that's that's rough. I, yeah, I, no, she has had the worst childhood ever, like even by Summer's family standards, <laughs> which is definitely saying something. It's a high bar. But one of the things I, I find really interesting about her as a character, I feel like her personality has been written in a number of very, very different ways over the years. I mean, you have the sort of trauma survivor that we see when she first appears you then have her really coming into her own and be becoming a lot more confident albeit still very angry and morally absolute at times next caliber then you have her after she gets back from the Ascani future speaking of future cold opens i she, thought we'd done that one maybe we have she at that point is almost a bit more at sea because you know her various reasons for being the things that she'd sacrificed herself for weren't really relevant anymore you know you talked about sort of the two early versions of her there's a very, very direct and contiguous evolution between those. When she's written by Claremont, the first time Claremont writes her, so through Uncanny and into Excalibur, very coherent and steady character arc, where she does, you know, come into her own, she gets the Phoenix powers, and by the time she gets to Excalibur, she's still carrying all of that stuff with her, but she's not as heavily defined by it, and she sort of gets to come into her own as a person as well as as a superhero. I feel like the last person to really have 
a good grasp on the character was Alan Davis. Since then, she's just been all over the map. And I think part of it is that people haven't really looked at that arc and haven't really seen it as, as evolution. Like they've looked at her and pulled out individual bits of it, but the whole just hasn't really come into the picture in a really long time. For you, like what are the personality traits that define who Rachel Gray is at this point in continuity? For me, she is a very interesting balancing act of tough and independent and also extraordinarily sensitive, not least because of her power set. I mean, she is the daughter of, of probably the most formidable telepath in the whole Marvel U. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's an overstatement, right? Jean Grey. So totally, I tried yeah. to sort of think of her from the point of view of, of somebody who has seen a lot and yet not only because of her power set, but also because of her personality remained very open. She is not only a telepath, but she's empathetic. I, I think those are two very different things. It's one thing to read people's minds. It's another thing to feel sympathy for or whoever's thoughts it is that you're, that you're reading. And I, I think she has both of those traits. I'm, you know, I'm sort of innately suspicious of telepaths and telepathy as a plot device because it's so often given to women and the point is so often to absorb the pain of others. I mean, that's what used to frustrate me about Jean Grey and the Phoenix storyline and all that stuff is that she would touch somebody's mind or, or she would get a read off of a situation or whatever and she would just sort of collapse because it would all be too much. It used to really annoy me <laughs> that that would happen. And so Rachel Grey kind of scared me a little bit because I was like, I have to do justice to this character it's like a joke with my Marvel editors. I'm like, oh, Willow hates telepaths. Don't give her any telepaths. <laughs> <laughs> and so, now you've got three. And yeah, now you've got three. Three it's of like four. The whole team <laughs> are all telepaths. So with her, it, for me, the challenge was really to balance those two things, to use her powers in such a way that she is making a serious contribution to the story and, and to the team, showing sort of the, the full range of what she can do, and yet at the same time avoiding making her the chick that falls down. You know, just because I like to challenge myself, I made her issue, her POV issue, the last issue in which all things are kind of decided and tied up and all this stuff. I forced myself to make her the most serious sort of linchpin of this whole thing. And I'm just about to start writing that issue right now. So it's interesting to me to kind of grapple with all of those things, with the fact that when you've got all of the backstory that she does, you can't address all of that stuff in one issue, that you kind of have to really focus on the personality that you have in the situation that you have. I've been trying to do justice to that balancing act. So I've got to say, you talked about being nervous going into this issue. Um, one of the things that Miles and I tend to do when people are Skyping in is very quietly write notes just so we can point each other to the outline. <laughs> and right now there's a whole section of it that's just a bunch of hearts that's like from everything you've been saying. Aww, so um, I will say she is one of both of our favorite characters. She's, yeah. she's on the short list of X-Men I've dressed up as for Halloween. Speaking of serious <laughs> question, Willow, uh, what's your favorite Rachel Gray costume? Because there have been a ton of them and I'm really curious because I know mine, but I, I'm curious about yours. You know, I kind of like the Cody thing that she's wearing now where, it, you know, like every time she turns around, there's like a flare and it looks good when she's jumping off at stuff. I think it's funny that she's gone from a very Marvel Girl inflected costume to a very like early aughts Cyclops inflected costume. A bit. Yeah. Yeah. The old school blue and yellow costumes. I mean, like to me, I wish that all of the X-Men were in those all the time. I mean, like I love the kind of like mod weird. It's the 60s. 
look at the go-go boots. Like, I love it. <laughs> I love the, the whole thing. Boots. That's actually been a cool thing about going through New Mutants is that they do keep the, those costumes. I mean, they're, they're drawn as black and yellow in those, but um, mm-hmm. th- throughout almost the entire run. And so you really have the characters having to be drawn very distinctly from one another as people rather than as what they're wearing. And I really dig that. Yeah, that's right. really nice. And it makes it look more like a uniform and less like... I fell into this dollar bin store on another planet and I emerged wearing this. <laughs> Which I mean, I think is especially true of Rachel Gray because she did literally just like run around in leotards and leg warmers for the first three years she was an X-Men. Yeah, yeah. Her and Rogue in the era we're covering right now, like they have a different outfit every single issue. It's Rogue great. is starting to settle into the like black unitard super cropped neck cut out green t-shirt thing which i kind of love oh dear <laughs> oh man oh, for the for the record my favorite rachel gray costume is actually when she was wearing the red and gold dark phoenix costume in excalibur that is a perfect costume period well right but the reason i yeah. liked it specifically was because not only is it visually really awesome but a lot of her arc has been about reclaiming the shitty parts of her past or in this case her mother's past as her own, like, you know, taking the good stuff and letting the bad stuff go. Like, she's very much like Jack Knight, Starman, and DC in that regard for me. Like, I love that she interacts with legacy, but she's not defined by it. God, that's a really, really great summation. Now I feel kind of stupid because my favorite of her costumes is her first Phoenix costume because I think the neckline's really cool. Oh, like with just sort of the Phoenix logo over her torso? Yeah, but where, but where the Phoenix logo is actually worked into the shape of the costume. I, that's always a touch that I really enjoy when they do it. I think that it is a massive omission that no one has ever made a really amazing like ball gown version of that costume because it would be so cool. Oh yeah, that would be rad as hell. Costumers, take note. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought of you for, for a long time specifically as a prose writer who sort of made the eventual evolution to comics and then you went back to prose. Obviously you've been terrifically successful at that. All of the Unseen is amazing. How much do you find that the voice that you've developed in each of those bleed into and inform and can inform each other? I think the sensibilities definitely inform each other. You are the same person no matter what medium you're working in, but the media themselves demand very different things from you on a technical level. By the way, I think comic book writing is is the most challenging of all of them. Of, of all of the different media that I've I've been lucky enough to work in, writing for comic books and superhero comic books in particular, where there's a predefined set of limits and a world in which you're working that you have to share with other people, that is by far the most challenging, way, way, way harder than writing a novel of any length. For the simple reason that, number one, you've got a page limit, typically. It's, it's 20 pages, not 19, not 21. If you want to do a cliffhanger, you have to make sure that the resolution of the cliffhanger is on a page turn, because if it's on the facing page, that ruins the suspense. You have to think of the book or the ebook as the physical object that the reader is experiencing panel by panel, you have to write haiku-length dialogue to explain this vast and varied continuity. So, like, the challenges are really immense, and it forces you, number one, to edit uh, and to synthesize. You, you can't go in and kind of BS in a comic book. You, you have to know what it is that you're out to say. You have to know what the story you want to tell is. Whereas in prose, you can kind of, like, go into these digressions and... You know, if it doesn't work out, you'll just kind of go back and cut it later. And, and with comics, if you make a mistake in one issue and it goes to press, you are stuck with that mistake <laughs> until your next retcon. So it's a very different process from any other kind of writing. But I think it helps enormously every other kind of writing I do because of that necessity to, to synthesize, to be brief, and to say only what you need to say in the most cogent way. 
but the, the thing that I think is cool about comics is that you can write the way that people really talk in prose when you're, when you're writing on, you know, a novel or something. If you have the comma, you know, the comma, like the dot, 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 it comes off as really mannered or very fake, uh, or, or just not appropriate. I mean, it ends up looking like a text message, but in comics, you can really capture cadences of speech the way that speech is actually spoken, which I love. I love writing dialogue in comics because you can have those little likes and the pauses and the what's and the whatever's. Your sensibilities carry over from one medium to another, whether you want it to or not, but your skills have to be very, you have to hone each of those skills very distinctly in order to make the different types of, of media work. You mentioned you're an X-Men fan. I think you're almost exactly our age. I was wondering for you, what defines X-Men as a line? What makes a book an X-Book beyond the specific characters? To me, X-Books are about the outsider metaphor. That The way that they were originally conceived and came into their own when I was, when I was young and reading them was when they were dealing with that metaphor. When you are different, whether you are right or wrong, society will punish you. I think that's the grim part of the message. But the thing that's uplifting about the X-Men is that you have a choice about how you face that difference. And you see that going back to, you know, the, the, the split between Professor X and Magneto with the sort of private doubts and, and fears of all of the different characters. The thing that I think they get so right is how much easier it is for characters who can blend in to make those choices than the characters like, for example, Beast, who they don't have a choice. They look a certain way. They can't hide. They don't have the option to hide. And the fact that this affects their evolution as a character and the way that they think, you can graph that onto politics today. You can, you can graph that onto identity politics today and, and, and pick a struggle. And so I think that's what makes the X-Men and the X-Books so unique and valuable. They are such a perfect metaphor for that discussion of in-group versus out-group without ever banging anybody over the head with something. I mean, it's, it's the great thing about fiction is that you can kind of sneak ideas into the reader's heads uh, under cover of metaphor, which is actually, um, I'm stealing this, almost this exact phrase from C.S. Lewis, who said that about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So that to me is it. It's, it's the outsider metaphor. And so I tend to sort of lose steam when, when the story arcs get into kind of like the big retcons and the trading back and forth between timelines and stuff. I like it when they're on the 616 and they're dealing with that outsider metaphor. So that's why, you know, I love the, the Sentinels and all of the mutant registration stuff. I love the, and, you know, I love the Phoenix and Dark Phoenix just because it showcased all the characters. So it's, it's yeah, I'm a 90s baby. <laughs> so I want to follow up a little bit on what you said about the metaphor. Sorry, I know I said last question, but this is a big one. Um, <laughs> one of the things that we've talked about previously a lot on panels and in, in a lot of conversations and something that I think you've been kind of a definitive voice of in superhero books is intersectional diversity and visibility. I have mixed feelings about the mutant metaphor, largely because it's resulted over a lot of time in a lot of erasure. This is the thing that matters. The metaphor matters. And at the, at the same time, actual you know, intersectional identity gets erased. That's something that you have addressed and talked about and handled really beautifully in a lot of your comics. And so my one question here is what your advice would be for future X-Men writers and for future Marvel editorial writers for keeping that metaphor meaningful and relevant, but not at the cost of, you know, real world identities and diversity as well. I almost feel like I don't have the right to answer it until I've written this whole thing and, and sort of seen how it all hangs together or not. Well, no, again, um, you're, you're going to just bogart the next arc too, so. <laughs> yep. 
go back to the core of who the characters are and what they want. I, I think really that's at the heart of all good storytelling. I think when we get lost in long-ranging, multi-step continuity itself, that the characters have to serve the continuity rather than vice versa, then that we really start to lose the threads of identity and it, it starts to become very existential. Like, you know, why, why doesn't any of this matter? Because this is only one of several multiverses and, and in this other thing, this happens and this person's going to come back in time and fix this thing. So t to me, it's about getting back to the core th thing that each character addresses that 90s that early 90s team that everybody loves had so much resonance because there was such a huge diversity of voices and backgrounds and power sets there was not a whole ton of overlap and so you had right out of the gate conflicting needs you had different ideas about how things had to be run you had love triangles you all sorts of things and so I think keeping that in mind and, and thinking of a team book as more than the sum of its parts is important. That they're not just there to sort of all look pretty on a page together, that, that each of those characters has a reason for being there. And it's your job to kind of dig down and figure out why that is. So with that, I think we're going to segue to questions from listeners. So first, More Like a Justice League on Tumblr asked... Willow, what character are you most excited to get your hands on someday that you haven't been able to write yet? Well, up until a couple of months ago, the answer would have been Storm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I just got to do that. So this is so cool. The past year, I've gotten to write both of my two biggest comic book crushes ever, which were Storm and Wolverine. And, and so I am just sort of over the moon. And now I have to make a new list. <laughs> I'd love to do Dazzler at some point. Yes, Alison Blair. Oh my god. She's like one of those characters. She's in this particular niche, and it's awesome, and somewhat underutilized, so I love that character. Nightcrawler is a huge, great other love of mine who I'd love to get my hands on. I, I got him for like five pages of a mini in Girl Comics several years ago. I remember that. But that was, with, yeah. was that with Ming Doyle? It was with Ming Doyle, yeah. I, I really, really adore that character. And, like, I super adored him after... This is going to sound like heresy because this is, you know, a slightly different shop now. But Alan Cumming, oh my god, as Nightcrawler in the movies was just... I mean, my world was complete at that point. So <laughs> that would be that would be a ton of fun. This is from Lavender Nebula, who asks, I'm already on board for your run of adjectiveless X-Men, but I have a serious question about it. Will there be fun times and shenanigans? <laughs> Sort of. Depends. Kind of. <laughs> no, you know, I have to say, this, this arc is somewhat serious, somewhat more serious than what I usually do, simply because the stakes are pretty high. So there are fun times. There's not a whole lot of shenanigans. However, I can't really talk about this too much, but if you are excited about this particular team of people, there's a book that I'm working on that I cannot talk about that you'll be super excited about that has a lot of fun and shenanigans in it. <laughs> Interesting. I, my, my brain is like thinking of 10 different possibilities right now, but I shall say none of them just in case, but <laughs> I'm intrigued. Well, I think we're, we're out of time, but Willow, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been awesome talking to you. Thank you guys so much for having me on. This has been great. You're currently writing Ms. Marvel and X-Men. Where else can folks find you? You can find me on my website, which is a Tumblr, gwillowwilson.com. You can find me on Twitter at gwillowwilson. If you, if you like my comic books, I've also read prose. You can buy Aleph the Unseen at fine independent bookstores everywhere. 
Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon. We are produced by Bobby Roberts, who is also the producer of the Geek Remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on our website, rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, companion posts, essays, fan art, lots of other stuff. Speaking of which, I think we've got, what, about two days left on the Corbeau coloring contest, if you are waiting to the last minute on that? Yes, yes, do that. Color a Corbeau. So this podcast is completely listener-supported, and it's made possible by our generous Patreon uh, supporters. So guys, thank you so much. If you'd like to become a supporter, uh, check out the link at the top of our website. And now is a good time to jump on, because we are, I think, what, like $120 away from making me go through all of X-Men Evolution and recap and review it. That's so much X-Men Evolution, dude. Oh my god, so many t-shirts tucked into boxers. <laughs> I don't know if I can do this, man. So next week we're going to be back in the 80s with Uncanny X-Men, uh, fighting killer robots from the future. And hanging out in the sewers with awesome super-powered kid team, the Power Pack. See you there. See you there.